Today's scripture comes from 1 Corinthians 3 to 18 and 4 to 5. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of the world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men. For all these things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. And you are Christ's and Christ is God's. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes. Who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart? Then each one will receive his commendation from God. You may be seated. Thank you. As you're seated, let me pray. Father, we ask today that you would open our eyes that we'd behold your glory, that you would open our ears that we'd hear your voice, that you'd open our hearts that we might believe in deeper and more transformative ways the good news of Jesus, and that, God, you would extend all of our seeing and hearing and believing into the work of our hands that you might be glorified in this world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I don't know about you, but I just turned a page in my Bible. So we've been in 1 Corinthians since uh, the middle of September, and uh, we've done page one and page two, and now we're on page three. We're just clipping along. We're just clipping along. A couple more years, we'll have this under our belt, hey? You know, the question uh, that, that I'm looking at in this text and I'm, I'm thinking about in, in many different ways, and I think it's a question that a lot of you ask, it's a question of who am I? Who am I? It's a question that I think every single human being asks at some point on a, on a deeper heart level. On one hand, people ask this question once and they maybe don't find a really easy answer to comprehensively summarize who they are, and then they just kind of move on and keep doing whatever they were doing before they started to ask that question. They go, it's not really something that I'm that interested in pursuing. I don't really know how to answer it, so I'm just going to move on. On the other hand, there's people who become obsessed about it every day of their life. It's like, who am I? Who am I? Who am I? They become obsessed with figuring this out, and they get into, at times, even a bit of a paralysis in life, trying to understand the answer to this question. And again, some wrestle with it internally and silently, and they just sort of carry that in them. And, and then others will wrestle with it very much out loud, talking to anyone who will be a sounding board, anyone who will hear them out and maybe give them some advice along the way, a conversation partner for them. We all wrestle with it differently. There was a, a Danish philosopher in the 19th century named Soren Kierkegaard. He wrestled with this question a lot. He said, where am I? Who am I? How did I come to be here? What is this thing called the world? How did I come into the world? Why was I not consulted? And if I'm compelled to take part in it, where is the director? I want to see him. Now, some of you laugh because that's kind of a funny quote. Others of you just go, ooh. Like you feel that. Like you feel that like on a 19th century, you know, Danish philosopher kind of level. Okay, for, for the record, I think he was more in the paralyzed by it kind of camp. 
But because of the culture that we live in, we're, we're free to do anything and be anything that we want. And that leaves us under the weighty burden of actually defining who we are on our own. It's what some have called the tyranny of choice. We have to define who we are. So who am I then becomes a burdensome question rather than an exciting exploration guided along by the Holy Spirit. It becomes a burdensome question to answer rather than an exploration of the truth of who you are in this world. So rather than who, who am I or who are you, I, I could ask what defines you? You could ask that in a number of different ways. People are defined by all sorts of things. And so we, we define ourselves by how we look or how we eat, what we eat, what we don't eat. What we wear. You can define yourself by what you do and where you work and where you were educated. You can define yourself by how you invest and how you, what, you, what you drive and where you live and how you exercise and your social status in the city and what you believe and all kinds of things can be, become defining features of our life. But the question I want to ask today as we look at this text, I want to ask, what defines you? Like you. It's going to become a corporate you all, but what defines you? As you walked in here today, what, what defines you? Here, we're going to look at two things in this text. We're going to look at cultivating identity, and then we're going to talk about judging motives. Judging motives. Okay? Cultivating identity, judging motives. This is what we're going to look at. The first one, judging or cultivating identity. Let's talk about who we are. Verse 18. Let no one deceive himself if anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age. Let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. Hey, Paul says to this church, who we know that he loves, he says, each one of you needs to be on guard against self-deception. Now, that's always good advice. I mean, we all need to hear it. But what we need to ask is in this text, in, in particular, what is he talking about? With regard to what in particular do we need to be a, you know, looking out for self-deception? Basically, what he's saying is that they need to be careful not to define their identity and meaning in life in Corinth on anything less than who they are in Christ. Be on guard against self-deception. The problem with this group of people that Paul the Apostle is writing this letter to is not that they're asking the question of who am I? Okay, that's a fine question. The, the problem is they are defining the answer according to worldly wisdom, not the truth of who they are in Christ. They're asking the right question and they're coming up with a self-deceived wrong answer. It's easy to do this. The self-deception happens anytime you look to anything or anyone other than Jesus to locate your ultimate identity and meaning in life. Let me say it again because I think we need to hear this. It is very easy to fall prey to the self-deception that he's talking about in the text. The self-deception happens anytime you look to anything or anyone other than Jesus to locate your ultimate identity or meaning in life. It's the construction of what, what one author has called the false self, the construction of the false self. The problem in Corinth is that they're captivated by worldly wisdom. They've got worldly ways of thinking. And the evidence of that is actually the way they're relating to each other, including the way they're relating to their leaders. 
It's the evidence of it. They got a worldly way of thinking that's evident in the divisions and factions among them. And the solution that, that Paul is offering them here is realizing the fullness of who they really are in Christ. That's the solution. What they're doing doesn't seem like that big of a deal until you actually begin to look at the consequences and you see the consequences of it playing out in all of the divisions and all the factions and struggles that they have in their church. Look at the first part of verse 21. It says, so let no one boast in men. This is his answer in many ways. In verses 18 to 20, what just comes right before this, he says, don't be deluded in your thinking. Don't be self-deceived. Don't overestimate the power of your own wisdom, even while you're ignoring the wisdom of God, right? He's saying to them, don't be a fool. Then he says, so then, or, or therefore, let no one boast in human leaders. Paul's saying the wisdom of the world says you should boast in mere mortals and you should align yourself behind them to gain status in this world. He's saying, don't do that. Paul's saying the wisdom of this world says you should boast in your leaders, but it should not be like that for you. Okay, why? Why is this different in the church? Okay, the second part of verse 21 and on. For all things are yours whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. And you are Christ's and Christ is God's. In their worldly wisdom, they were getting their identity from worldly ideas, namely the way that they're all divided up into little factions within the church. And Paul's saying, you would not be boasting in human leaders unless you were absolutely captivated by a worldly way of thinking, which is not aligned with the wisdom of God. And his whole point that he's getting at is that there's a better way to live. It's his whole point. There is a better way to go about being the community of Jesus' church in Corinth. The problem is they're captivated by a worldly way of thinking that has created a false self. And the evidence is the way that they're all broken up and arguing with each other. And the solution is realizing the fullness of who they really are in Christ. He's saying, don't go messing around trying to gain some status and identity in things other than Jesus. Why? All things are yours. All things are yours. Look at the text. For all things are yours. Whether Paul, one of the leaders, or Apollos, a competing leader. Or Cephas, another team in the church. Or the world, or life, or death. Or the present, or the future. All are yours. And you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. His whole point is that they should reject the worldly wisdom they are living with. They should reject worldly status markers. They should reject the, reject the idea that they were part of the good faction or the right faction or the right leader or, or sitting within the right school of thought. He says all that's garbage when it's held up in light of who they already are and what they already have in Christ. See, just like you and just like me, the Corinthian church forgot who they already were and they forgot what they already have. 
It's like they asked the right question. They said, who am I? But then they forgot to start answering that question with God. They've built a false self on a bad foundation. And Paul's trying to say, just shift back over here. Come back to Jesus. All this other stuff doesn't matter. You gotta come back to Jesus to figure out who you are. When we forget who we already are and we forget what is already ours, we cultivate a false self that harms us, it harms our relationship with God, and it harms our relationship with one another. If we build a false self, it's not good for anyone. They were seeking to define their identity and meaning in life on something less than who they are in Christ. And Paul says, stop it. It's already all yours. Sometimes we forget what's ours in Christ. I just think we need to stop for a second and be reminded. I think that's what he's doing. That's what he's saying. He says, you don't have to divide over leaders. They're all yours. You don't belong to Paul. You don't belong to Apollos. You don't belong to Cephas. He says, they're all yours. It's not the other way around. You don't have to destroy yourself trying to climb the ladder of status in this world. You don't have to struggle to succeed so that you can gain or retain some kind of identity and create some kind of meaning in this world. He says, you don't have to do that. You don't have to claw your way toward purpose in life. The world is already yours. I, do you believe that? That is hard to comprehend. But it's true. New life. He's saying life is yours. New life's not something you have to try and grab a hold of on your own. It's actually a gift to you in Christ. He's saying death. It's not something you have to be terrified by. It's been overcome. It will one day be destroyed fully and finally in Christ. He says the present doesn't need to be filled with anxiety because Christ is with you and the future doesn't have to be scary because Christ has already secured God's best for us. It's all yours. So don't settle for a false self that is anything less than who God saved you to be. Robert Mulholland Jr. said our false self having removed the roots of our identity, meaning, value, and purpose from loving union with God, sinks those roots into multiple alternative soils where we seek to find our identity, meaning, value, and purpose. Among such soils are our sexuality, our possessions, our status, our profession, our performances, our relationships, our woundedness, our resentments, our bitterness, our culture, our ethnicity, our, our place, geographical, emotional, psychological, our intellect, our education, ad infinitum. Our false self has constructed a complex nexus of soils in which the roots of our very being are grounded. Okay, what he's saying is, you're going to plant the root, you're going to plant yourself 
in the, in, in the soil of something. Your roots are gonna go down into something in life for you to gain meaning and purpose. Are you paying attention to where you're getting your nourishment? Because if you're not planted in Christ, you're gonna find another place to be planted. And those other places will then start to define who you are. Those other things are gonna be your sexuality, possession, status, profession, performances, bitterness, all the things that he said. Where are your roots? Are they deep in Christ or are they in a plethora of other things? Are the roots of your identity deep in the soil of who God says you are in Christ? It says in verse 21, for all things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. He's saying these leaders that you're talking about, all yours in Christ. They're all yours because you're Christ's and he is Lord. The world, all yours because you belong to Christ. Life and death, oh, guess what? All yours because you are Christ and you're never gonna believe it. You're never gonna believe it. But he also says the present and the future. Guess what? Like I'm not trying to sell knives at midnight on TV here, okay? All yours because you're Christ's. Let that sink in today. You came in here all messed up this week because you're just like me and I'm just like you. You're all messed up about how to think about the world and what's going on next and what do I do next year and what about when I'm 65? And in the souls of you 65, you're going like, why did I think about that when I was 40? We all come in with all of our baggage, all of our crap. We might as well not pretend we don't have it. You showed up here today just, everything's great. No, it's not. I hope everything's almost all great, but I'll guarantee you not everything's great. Every single one of us have scars and wounds and burdens we carry. If not for us, then for someone else. It's all yours. Because you're Christ. Do you know where your roots are? Pete Nicholas said we need to remember that the gospel offers us an identity not predicated on something we do or something we've chosen, but on who he has made us. And that is wonderfully liberating. See, in Christ, you're free to become who he says you already are. You're free from the temptation to sink your roots into the soil of worldly wisdom and try to define yourself on your own. Paul calls that self-deception. But you're also free to sink your roots into the nourishing soil of your relationship with God. So if you're not a follower of Jesus and you're here with us today, are you not tired with the struggle of trying to answer the question, who am I? How impossible does that feel on your own? I was with you. I was, I was 19, almost 20 when I became a Christian. I know how exhausting that is. Trying to do it all in your own strength, it doesn't, it doesn't work. There's too many choices. Come to Jesus. Receive the new and true identity that he'll give you now and forevermore. The, the, one of the reasons that you're not a follower of Jesus and you're here 
because somebody invited you for sure, but one of the reasons why this isn't just the most compelling thing in the world is because we're still struggling with it. I've been a Christian for 20 years. I'm still struggling with it. I'm still tr- struggling to come back and make sure my roots are in the right soil all the time. But just come struggle with us. It's far easier than the struggle apart from Christ. See, Christ City, hear me. If you are a weary and struggling Christian, can I, can I just say, I think I have a word from the Lord for you today. When you sit in a room full of people like this and you feel lonely, can, can you just know you can run to him? You can run to him. It's not going to deal with the feeling of loneliness in, in, in a human way immediately. But once you get that squared away, it'll change the way you relate to everyone around you. You can run to him. He's yours. You are Christ's. When you're afraid to be open with who you are, maybe you're, you're filled with guilt and shame. Maybe you think no one would talk to you if they knew what you had done. Know that you can run to him. That he lifts that guilt, that he lifts that shame, that he gives you a new identity. He is yours. He never rejects those who come to him. Christ City, if if you're a follower of Jesus, you're Christ. He never rejects those who are coming to him. When you're broken, move toward him. He'll mend your brokenness. When you think you never really are ever going to feel like you belong in Jesus' church. When you feel like who you are means you'll never, like you're, you're maybe kind of in, but you never will feel like you belong in this room right now. Can I just tell you, you're not alone. You're not the only person who struggles with this. I don't know how sometimes I even walk in the door to come and gather with God's people, let alone stand in the pulpit. I can't comprehend it. You're not alone if you feel like you don't really fit. And you feel like your heart will just never rest. Like you just can't feel a full sense of peace. Can I just tell you, you need to hear the words of Jesus. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus says to all who are burdened. He says, come to me. I am your rest. I will make you feel like you belong. So I never reject those who come to me. That's what Jesus says in the Gospels. So, so we, we, we can't settle for a false self because we are Christ's. Don't settle for standing on the shaky foundation of worldly wisdom. Come to Jesus. Receive your true self, your true identity. Reestablish it right now in this moment. That's what the text is telling us. You're Christ. Sometimes all the restlessness in your soul just comes from planting your roots in the wrong soil. Do you hear me? Sometimes the restlessness you feel is because you're hanging on to an old identity grounded in something that is not Christ. Oh, just rip those roots out and reestablish them back in God. You are Christ. 
Listen to the Apostle Paul. Like he, listen to one line. Do you, have, do you ever read the Bible and there's one line that just stands out to you? One thing he says in this text, he goes, you are Christ's. That has wrecked me all week. But, but 350 years before or after Paul the Apostle wrote these words to, to the church in Corinth, there was an African bishop named Augustine. And he was quite restless as a person. In some books that he's written, we know that he had a very hard time letting go of the past to fully put his roots down into the soil of God. He said, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. You've made us for yourself. If you're a follower of Jesus, you are Christ. He has made you for him, and your heart will be restless if it rests in anything other than him. The problem in Corinth is that they're captivated by all of these other ideas. They created a false self. The, the evidence was the way that they're relating to each other. It's all messed up, including the way they're relating to their leaders, which is all messed up. But the solution is recognizing that they are Christ. Who am I? What defines me? Well, I am Christ. I belong to Jesus. We're cultivating identity, but we also need to look at judging motives. Cultivating identity, now judging motives. Look at the rest of the text here, the next four verses. Paul says, before, before you read the text, Paul says, look, you're all messed up. That's what he's been saying. It's a great pastoral thing to say, Christ City. He's not precluding himself. He's just got a few things figured out more than they do. What he's saying is they're all messed up and they're relating to their leaders incorrectly. So this is what he says, verse one. This is how one should regard us as leaders, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It's the Lord who judges me. And Paul says, rather than elevating him and Cephas and, Paul, uh, and Peter, Peter, Apollos, Cephas and Peter are the same person. I get confused. Rather than elevating these people, you need to know that you are Christ and that Christ is God's. And he says that we as your leaders are servants of Christ, stewards of the mysteries of the gospel, that is the mysteries of the salvation extended to the whole world and that we are called to be faithful. We are servants of Christ, stewards of the gospel, and we're called to be faithful. It's good for all of us to hear. It's good for those of us who are leaders to be reminded of what we're supposed to be like. It's also good for those of you who are not yet leaders because you know what you're looking for. Kind of like we talked about last week. Are we building with gold and silver and precious stones? Or are we building with wood, hay, and straw? How do, you, how do you identify those features? What are you looking for? This is what he's saying you're looking for in a leader, a servant of Christ, a steward of the gospel, called to be faithful to God. He keeps going, though, which is kind of funny. You don't seem like you're in the mood to laugh with me, but that's okay. I'm going to say it anyways. Okay, he says he's an apostolic church planting leader. 
He is to be regarded in, in that role as a servant of Christ, a steward of the gospel, and that he is to be found faithful before God. That's what he's saying about himself, who he is as one of their leaders. But he does not much care what they think of him or their evaluation of him. And for that matter, he's saying he does not really worry that much about his own evaluation of himself, because ultimately it is God who will judge him, not the Corinthians and not himself. Did you see in the text? Just look back at it if you, if you can. Verse 3 says, With me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or any human court. I don't know how you categorize that, but that's a burn in some way. It's a small thing for me to be judged by you. Like it's, it's cloaked in the graciousness that Paul had and the love that he had for this church, but he does not care what they think of him. I love that. He's pretty secure in the fact that he is Christ. Hey, what's he getting at? Doesn't care about their evaluation of him, doesn't care about his own evaluation of himself because he knows ultimately he's going to stand before God and that God's evaluation of him is what matters. And we, we need a reminder of what's going on. Remember, Paul had gone and planted this church in the city of Corinth. He stayed there for about two years. And now he's been gone for about four. It's about four years later or something like that. He's off probably in the city of Ephesus. And somebody travels with a letter from the church and probably a pretty scathing verbal report to Paul in Ephesus. He reads the letter that they sent and he starts answering their questions in what we call 1 Corinthians. He also gets a verbal report of what's going on. He's not particularly pleased. We have to remember that because that's the background of what's happening here. The report that they send or the report that he receives says, hey, look, Paul, we know that you planted this church, but most of us think you're pretty weak. Most of us regard your preaching as milk when we would much prefer a five-course meal of solid food. You're weak, your preaching sucks, and we got better people over here. The report that he gets says, we started a church merch store and we created t-shirts that say Team Apollos, Team Cephas, and Team Paul. And just so you know, Paul, nobody wants your shirts. Okay, church merch is hilarious, just so you know. One of my dear friends wants us to have church merch and I think it's a horrible idea. It's just like the Jesus fish you have on your bumper when you cut me off in traffic. So why, why set ourselves up for failure like that? <laughs> hey, Paul, you're weak, your preaching stinks, and nobody wants your t-shirt. We're judging you as a minister of the gospel and the efforts that you had when you're here. We're judging those now. We don't think you're very good. He says, uh, I am not worried about you judging me. In fact, I'm not even worried about myself judging me. I am Christ. I'll stand before God. See, if he has a good report from the Corinthians, he says he doesn't really care. If he has a bad report from the Corinthians, he also doesn't care. But also, if he looks at his own life and he says, man, I'm doing really, really well, he's saying, I don't care. He's also looking at his life and going, I'm a failure. Sometimes I feel like nothing. He's going, yeah, yeah, I don't take that too seriously either. Why? I'm Christ. See, something has transformed him. 
in the sense that he's not really worried what everybody else thinks. All that matters is what God says. Okay? Let me say a couple things about this text. First, this is not a text for some rogue pastor to use to just ignore all of the counsel from all the elders and fellow church leaders around them. It's not what this is saying. Don't let some pastor ever do that to you. Okay? I might not care what you think, and I might not care what I think. That doesn't mean I can ignore your wisdom and the wisdom of those who God puts around me. Okay? The problem is I'm not really like Paul. I actually deeply care what you think, and it troubles me most of the days of the week. I really care what I think, and sometimes it's a voice of condemnation that comes through in my own voice. So I, I need the message of I am Christ just as much as anyone else in this room. It's not a text to use as, as some pastoral leader to just disregard everything that's going on. Okay, look back at the text. Verse 1 of chapter 4 says, This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Servants of Christ, stewards of the gospel. That's what he's saying. A servant, in this context, and the way that it's being used, is somebody who is under someone who's in authority. The Lord or the master, the servant is just under, and in this sense, he's a servant of Christ. So he's under the authority of Jesus. Okay? A steward of the gospel, on the other hand, a steward is somebody who oversees a household, somebody who has a responsibility to a people. Paul's saying, I am under the authority of Jesus as his servant, and I'm a steward of your church. I'm a steward of the gospel, he's saying. Paul is both under authority and in authority. He is in submission to Jesus, and at the very same time, he is in charge of communicating the gospel of Jesus to the rest of the world, including to the church that he's already planted in Corinth. He is under authority, and he's in a place of authority. See, in the kingdom of God, you cannot be in a position of authority unless you are under authority. Okay, welcome to the tension of Christian leadership. You can't have authority unless you're under authority. This is not a text for some pastor to use to browbeat the church and say, I can do whatever I want. Pastors have used it that way, and that's wrong. A good and faithful pastor is under authority. In the local church setting, that'll be to the elders, who are ultimately all under shepherds of the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. Okay. Paul says he will not be judged by the church. He'll be judged by Jesus. His faithfulness will be judged by Jesus. So in a sense, he doesn't really care what they're saying. He's the servant of Christ and the steward of the gospel. He does not work for them. He works for Jesus. That's liberating. When you know you are Christ, it's very freeing. He does not allow them to judge him, but he also doesn't allow himself to judge himself because ultimately he knows he'll stand before the Lord and the Lord is the only one who matters. That's what he's saying. Why does he not care about their judgment and evaluation of him? There's a bunch of reasons, but one of them is in the text it says that their judgment is premature. They can't possibly know what's going on. They don't have the whole picture. And he says that they're living into worldly wisdom more than they're living into their identity in Christ. So he doesn't really care what they say about him. See, they are necessarily deficient in their understanding because they do not have the omniscience or all-knowingness of God. He goes, I don't really care what you think because you don't have a clue. I only care about what God thinks. Also, please hear me is what he's saying. Please rightly place yourself under the authority of God. Look at verse 5. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, 
That, that's what he's saying. You can't know what's going on yet because you're not God. Also, it's not time for you to know what's happening. So don't pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each will receive his commendation from God. So he says, the Lord alone will judge. The Lord alone knows the time. The Lord alone knows the truth. The Lord alone knows the motive or the intent or the purposes of the heart. The motive or the intent or the purposes of the heart. So what he's saying is, therefore, you don't need to try and do God's job on your schedule. Let God do his job on his schedule. You can't possibly judge me, he says, because you don't understand the intent or the purposes of the heart. You're not God, and it is not yet time for that judgment to come. Now, I think there's something really important that we need to learn here. If I'm honest, I, I think this will save you a lot of heartache, a lot of frustration relationally. Okay? What's the most popular Bible verse for people who are not yet followers of Jesus? In Matthew 7, 1. Judge not lest ye be judged. It is. It's a verse I quoted at Christians before I became a Christian. That was one of my favorite verses. This is like the only verse I knew in the Bible. Judge not lest ye be judged. Okay, in chapter 4, so that's Matthew 7, judge not lest you be judged. In chapter 4 here, Paul's saying don't judge, correct? Don't judge. But in chapter 5, he's going to say, you need to judge others in the church. And then in chapter 6, he's going to say, we're going to judge the world. So can't you figure out your own differences? Hey, you sit back and you go, Paul, pick a lane, bro. No, this is really important for us as a community. In Matthew 7, Jesus is talking about hypocritical judgment. It's the plank speck text. Don't judge your brother with a speck in his eye when you've got a plank in your own. First remove the plank from your own eye and then you'll be able to see clearly. The, the impulse of it is once you remove the plank from your eye, you'll realize that you've been forgiven just like them. Don't be a hypocrite. Judge not lest ye be judged. That's Matthew 7. Here in chapter five, uh, four, we'll come back to that. In chapter five, Paul tells the church to judge the actions of someone in the church that they might be saved. Judge the sinful actions of the brother in the church, that's what it's gonna say in chapter five, that they might be saved. Okay, chapter six, Paul's gonna tell the church to judge between right and wrong so that you're not suing each other and ruining your witness in the city. You see, you're gonna judge the world. Can't you figure out a, Difference between two people in the church before you just take it to the secular court? That's what he's saying. Here in chapter four, he's dealing with judging the unseen and unrevealed motives of someone's heart. This is talking about the intent of the heart. Okay? Judging unseen motives will never go well. Like I said, I think this is really important for us as a community. Judging actions between brothers and sisters in Christ so that they will repent of their sin and then be saved, that's actually what we're called to do. Judging motives is the role of God and God alone. Okay, again, I want to save us a bunch of heartache and frustration with each other. So here's a phrase you need to take out of your vocabulary. Oh, I know why he did that. Oh, I know why she did that. Here's the truth. You don't have a hot clue because you are not omniscient. You are not all-knowing and you do not know why people do the things they do. 
Paul's gonna say in chapter five, judge their sin that they might repent and be saved. He's gonna say in chapter six, judge the actions of one another who are bringing shame and disrepute on the name of Jesus in the city. But he's saying here in chapter four, don't assume you understand why someone's doing what they're doing. You don't know. You don't know the motive of their heart. When you try and judge the motives of someone else's heart, unless they have come to you and said, here's why I did that, you are touching the omniscience of God. And anytime you touch the attributes of God, it does not go well for us. You don't know everything. You don't know the kind of pain and sorrow and difficulty and challenge that people are carrying. So when you see somebody doing something that you think they shouldn't be doing, judge their actions. Don't sit back and go, I know why they did that. Or you go to them and say, what, what are you doing? What's going on? This, honestly, is one of the number one pastoral bits of counsel I've given for the last 15 years. I'll sit down with somebody and they'll say, well, I know why they're doing that. And I usually will go, no, you don't. Because again, I'm not super pastoral. <laughs> like to get right to the heart of the matter. It's, it's true. It's one of the things in my life that I've had to try and cut out because I know full well that it does not serve anyone to assume you know what's going on and then make judgments based on that. Sam told me this this week. Sam's associate pastor here. I don't know if he's up doing announcements and welcoming you. Sam said this this week. I'm just going to end with this statement because I'm out of time. He says, the way you judge needs to be rooted in your identity. You are Christ. You are Christ. 